Today, I'm happy to present my conversation with Dr. Allison Wong, a graduate of the Dalhousie Plastic Surgery Program, who's now a trauma fellow at Shock Trauma down in Baltimore. We talked about metacarpal fractures, not normally an orthopedic injury in Canada, but I think that this is very important for understanding two major types and the mechanisms of metacarpal fractures, how to perform the JOS maneuver, and then understanding the, the principles of fixation, particularly when considering operative versus non-operative management. These are all high yield points. So after a quick word from our sponsors, I hope you're gonna enjoy this episode. Hey there, med school keeners. MD Consultants is the best company out there for application review and interview prep. You'll work with a customized consultant to get the best chance at admission to one of your top schools. Visit mdconsultants.ca and enter code ORTHOPOD15 for 15% off packages for pre-med students. Visit mdconsultants.ca, code ORTHOPOD15, and get into the med school of your choice. Okay, so hello everyone. Welcome to uh, our latest episode. I have here uh, Dr. Allison Wong. She's a Canadian-trained plastic surgeon who's currently doing her fellowship down at Shock Trauma at the University of Maryland. Uh, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, today, we're just going to talk about metacarpal fractures. I was thinking we could start by talking a little bit about the background of the common patterns of metacarpal fractures that you see, the mechanism and the presentation. Definitely. 40% of all hand fractures are metacarpal fractures, and about 80% of those are metacarpal neck fractures. So they're a very common injury. And regardless of what subspecialty of orthopedics or plastic surgery you go into, you will see metacarpal fractures. I guess just taking a step back, like in terms of framing the discussion, what do you think would be the best way to discuss metacarpal fractures? This is a huge topic. It is a really big topic. I actually gave a a talk to the residents recently, and it was just on metacarpal neck fractures because metacarpal fractures, even in general, ends up being pretty huge. So... (laughs) probably can give like a very general overview of the metacarpal fractures. Obviously neck fractures are the most common followed by shaft fractures. And then in the thumb, you can get the base fractures and epibasilar fractures as well. So those are the the most common ones that you tend to see. Okay. So uh, can we start with the the boxer's fracture, which is probably the most common one? You know, how does this fracture occur? Uh, What's the common pattern? And what are you thinking about when you'll see one of these? I think one of the first things that I want to make sure everyone understands is it's easy uh, with sort of the eponymous name of boxer's fracture to really apply it to a lot of uh, metacarpal fractures, especially ones that happen the fourth and fifth. But a boxer's fracture is actually a very specific fracture of the fifth metacarpal neck. So it's not a shaft fracture. It's not really even technically a fourth metacarpal neck. It's really that fifth metacarpal neck. And how it happens is generally a bit of a misnomer because it's from swinging and not a straight punch. So what happens is someone's throwing more of a cut <laughs> and um, when they hit the, the knuckle, that forward force goes through the metacarpal and where there's that natural curvature at the neck, it tends to break because that's the weakest spot in the, the bone. So generally these people then present 
with pain along the ulnar aspect of their hand. Usually it's swollen, it's bruised. When you do an x-ray, you see that there's a fracture of the bone uh, in that location. Now with that mechanism, you can get fourth metacarpal and neck fractures, or you can get shaft fractures as well, but that, that's the typical boxer's fracture. Are there any general principles that you think about when you're looking at the x-ray of a metacarpal neck fracture? Yes. So when I'm looking at the x-ray, really what I want to get a sense of is where the fracture itself is located, as well as the fracture geometry. All of boxer's fractures sort of by definition are transverse, but you can have other metacarpal shaft fractures that are either transverse, oblique, or spiral. And with that, you want to then make sure that you have your three views, so your AP, oblique, and lateral. And that will then give you a sense of how much angulation there is of the fracture, which then plays into what your thoughts for management are, because there's only so much angulation that the different metacarpals will tolerate functionally. How accurate are these tables when applied to practice? Like, would you actually look at an x-ray and say it's above or below the cutoff and then decide on your management accordingly? Generally, yes. And one of the things to consider uh, why angulation matters is just due to the biomechanics uh, and the pull of the tendons and how much uh, grip strength and then extension you lose when that metacarpal head is really far down. And the reason that you may have seen in tables that the fifth metacarpal can tolerate so much more angulation actually has to do with the CMC joints because for the index and long finger, the CMC joints are essentially uh, totally immobile. So there, there's no movement. Fourth has a little bit of movement and the fifth is really like a saddle joint similar to the thumb. So there's a fair bit of movement and which means that can compensate for some of that angulation. So that's when you see the table and the general rule from I like to remember is that starting at the index uh, for your metacarpal neck, that's 20, 30, 40, 50. Now, some resources will say that the small finger can tolerate up to 60 degrees of apex dorsal angulation, but just remembering kind of the 20, 30, 40, 50, is just an easy way to remember it. The numbers themselves are really more of a guideline anyways. No one's going to say, well, this is 40 degrees versus 45 or 50 versus 55. I think I'll have to fix this or at least perform a reduction maneuver or not. But it gives you a guide on sort of how to decide what you should do. Let's say we have a metacarpal neck fracture where you think that it may require a reduction maneuver. How would you reduce it? I mean, one of the things that I really want to make sure that people know is even though we just spent all this time talking about the angulation, really what is much more the deciding factor for treatment is the rotational deformity. So if you have, say we have someone though that doesn't have a rotational deformity and they just have a really badly malangulated 
uh, metacarpal neck fracture, what you'd be doing for a reduction maneuver. There are a couple of different ones described. The very classic one is the JOSS maneuver, which is actually J-A-H-S-S. And what that is, is you apply traction to the finger. And then while maintaining traction, you flex at the MP, the PIP and DIP joints. So you curl the finger up underneath and then you apply a dorsally directed force up uh, through the finger, essentially to try to pop the head of the metacarpal back up. So that's, that's the classic reduction maneuver for a metacarpal neck fracture. What you can also do if you have the resources in your emergency department or clinic is you can actually put them in traction like you would for a distal radius. And that works well too, uh, essentially just using ligament taxis that pulls the, the metacarpal head up. When you just uh, put them in finger traps, you don't need to do any fancy maneuvers. So That's, you can do it either way. Can we take a step back and talk about the uh, malrotation piece? So as a student, it, I found it difficult because sometimes there would be some overlap and it would be considered scissoring and sometimes not. So can you shed some light on how to define malrotation? Yeah, so malrotation um, is, is somewhat tricky to assess clinically. Uh, even though it's what we will always ask either the medical student, the resident who's calling us, the uh, physician in the emergency department, that's what we always want to know is, is there scissoring? And what scissoring is, is when someone goes to make a fist, is that finger essentially pointing in the wrong direction, which means you need to know what direction it should be pointing in. And really, when you bring your hand in, all of the tips of your digit should point towards your scaphoid tubercle. So they should all really kind of come in almost to a little bit of a point. And when you're looking at that, you do want to look at the uninjured hand because some people just naturally will have a little bit of overlap with their digits or maybe their small finger doesn't point uh, quite to the scaphoid. So you really want to look at both sides. And um, one of the issues with getting them to try to make a full fist is depending on how acute the fracture is, it's going to be really sore. And oftentimes the person isn't going to want to bring their hand in all the way. And really the best way to assess malnutrition when they won't do that is get them just to relax their hand so that their hand has like, they're just kind of gently having a flexion cascade. And then you can look at their fingernails and really all of the nail plates should line up in a nice smooth line. And if you're looking and one is off, then you're probably thinking that there is some aspect of malrotation. So there's kind of two things you can look at is one, when you're trying to make a fist, are they pointing the right direction? And then two, when your fingers are kind of at rest in the flexion cascade, are they on the same transverse plane. And yeah, your fingernails should make, like if you look at the tips of all of them, they should make a nice smooth arch. Uh, and if one is kind of off, then uh, you're thinking that there probably is some degree of malrotation. Obviously, if it's really off, then it'll be pretty obvious. They won't be able to like necessarily bring their small finger in to meet their other fingers as well. Okay. Which can throw people off. But it should still line up, but right. it, will, it will be kind of stuck out a little bit. I can send you a video. I have a good video of scissoring the patient to um, give permission to share it because um, 
it's it's a hard thing to describe and and really to get without actually seeing what it looks like. The two next questions I wanted to ask about neck fractures are one, how worried would you be about an extensor tendon tendon injury? And two, once you've reduced it, how do you cast it? So generally for a closed metacarpal neck fracture, I'm not concerned about their extensor tendon at all. Really, like we had talked about, if there's a lot of angulation, oftentimes you'll have an extensor leg and people will ask like, oh, you know, did they have malrotation? Did they have a leg? And the leg is really more just because of the tendon now having to travel a longer distance up over the, the hump and then down to the head and the rest of the digit. But it's very uncommon to actually get or like lacerate the, the tendon in a closed metacarpal injury. With open ones, you have to worry a little bit, especially uh, there's sort of a a subset of punch injuries called fight bites, where someone punches someone in, in the mouth and gets their teeth. Often you don't necessarily have a metacarpal neck fracture. You usually have like maybe a tiny little fleck off the metacarpal head, but those can be associated with extensor tendon injuries and more worryingly can actually be associated with uh, a septic joint because the tooth can get into that MCP joint and introduce bacteria into it. So that's a whole other topic, but uh, definitely something to ask on your history about what they punched, okay. especially if there is even just like a little cut over top. Um, how are you casting this hand? So that's that's actually probably one of the most contentious things with these fractures. So there's been a ton of research and actually fairly good prospective research looking into different immobilization positions and even whether or not to immobilize them at all. And really, especially for your fifth metacarpal neck fractures, there's good quality evidence to say you can put a soft dressing on them just to remind them that they have an injury to take it easy and not immobilize them at all. And that the outcomes are similar to immobilizing them. Now, uh, many people don't feel comfortable doing that. So they'll still put uh, the patient in some type of immobilization, which can help for pain as well, uh, and soft tissue rest. And then how you choose to immobilize them. Uh, traditionally, it would be in the, the safe position, which is the wrist at 20 to 30 degrees of extension, the MCP joints at about 80 to 90 degrees of flexion, and then the IP joints straight. And the reason that's the safe position is essentially the position that puts all of your collateral ligaments at maximum stretch for the different joints so that you're less stiff when you come out of your splint or your cast. Now, where many of these patients are otherwise young and healthy, people have looked into this and looked at immobilizing them uh, either totally straight out to their fingertips or just immobilizing their MP joints also out straight and have found that, again, the, the outcomes are all equivalent. So essentially, you can immobilize or not immobilize as you see fit uh, in almost any position. I think if you are going to immobilize them out to the fingertips, 
I generally prefer to put them in the safe position. You just have to be careful when you're molding your splint or your cast that your bend at the MP joints is actually at the MP joints because it's really easy to create that bend a little too distal and you're not actually getting uh, the flexion there, in which case you might as well put them out straight. When you put them out straight, I like them leaving their PIP and VIP joints free so then they can move their fingertips and have some tending glides. They don't tend to get as stiff anyways. Interesting. So if you were to put them in the safe position with say a plaster cast, how would you ensure that your bend is at the MCPs? Really, you just, you feel with your thumb in the, the palm and then your fingers kind of wrapped around the back of their hand and then bending their fingers down. And what you want to make sure is really understanding that your metacarpal heads are really going to be at your distal palmar crease and not your distal flexion crease. I was just going to say, because the base of the fingers is about a centimeter and a half distal to the MCPs. Exactly. So that's what happens is that's where people make their bend, but it's halfway up the proximal phalanx. So if you, if you did have to operate on one of these, what kind of construct would you be using? So with metacarpal neck fractures, one of the things to keep in mind is that there's the metacarpal head itself is not that big. So while there are plates that have more of a T or Y shape where you can get at least uh, two holes distal to it, you're really then trying to operate essentially into the joint capsule. There's a lot of uh, soft tissue. So my personal preference for metacarpal neck fractures is to do uh, percutaneous fixation with K-wires. Um, you can do in the fifth metacarpal, you can do cross pinning um, from distal approximal. So your retrograde cross pinning. You also do retrograde like IM pinning. If the fracture's even a little bit more distal, you can also do something sort of a fancier version of IM K-wiring called the bouquet technique, where you actually make a little entry hole in the base of the metacarpal and then uh, push your K-wires up uh, in anterograde uh, fashion. So those are the, the main kind of K-wire ways of doing it. So if you had a transverse metacarpal neck fracture, obviously if you were a bit more proximal and the fracture was more, or the fracture was more oblique, then you have a few more options in terms of open reduction and internal fixation. Hey, are you looking to boost your MCAT scores? Let me tell you about Prep 101. Prep 101 takes a comprehensive approach to MCAT prep. They teach you all the science, help you master the challenging passage-based format, and they hone your critical thinking and reasoning skills. When you nail these three areas, knowledge, skills, and strategies, you'll get that score. They offer 138 hours of live instruction, more than any other company. They also devote more time to guided practice and have more live instruction hours on that tricky cars section. All of this adds up to a prep course that offers more of everything you need to get top scores. So make sure you check out prep101.com casting and use discount code 350castingpod for $350 off their course. Again, if you're trying to get into school this fall, check out prep101.com casting and use discount code 350castingpod.
Gotcha. Is there anything different when it comes to shaft fractures from like a principal or clinical exam perspective? So the clinical exam is still really going to be the same. You're still looking for the same things in terms of the amount of deformity uh, with sensor leg and angulation. And the other thing to keep in mind is what the other injuries are, if there are any, uh, both in the hand and elsewhere. So obviously at uh, shock, we see a lot of polytrauma. And so we see a lot of hands that have multiple metacarpal or metacarpal and phalanx injuries, as well as people that may have only a single metacarpal, but they might have, you know, lower extremity injuries or their other arm injured as well. And that's actually going to change your management a little bit because they might need to use that hand. When it's an isolated hand injury, it's easy to make them, you know, non-weight bearing and immobilize them in the hand, however you like, and, and someone would be fine. But if they need that hand to do transfers or anything like that, then that's going to affect sort of your, your management with their, their hand fracture. I think with the metacarpal shaft fractures, realizing that they can come in a few more patterns. So you can have a transverse fracture, you can have an oblique fracture, and quite often you can have spiral fractures. And with spiral fractures, especially, you're going to be a bit more prone to having malrotation. Um, and then in terms of then deciding whether or not you're going to operate on them, you then have to think of their angulation. And generally, shaft fractures don't tolerate as much angulation as neck fractures. And that's, again, just the simple uh, mechanics thing, because if you're essentially if your angle, like your point is further back, it doesn't take as many degrees of angulation to end up with that same amount of volar displacement for your metacarpal head, which would then cause your um, extensor leg. So that's why metacarpal shafts don't tend to tolerate as much angulation. So then for your repair for metacarpal shaft, if they do meet any of the, the many criteria for choosing to do like operative fixation, generally have more options because you can still choose to do closed reduction percutaneous pinning, but most metacarpal shaft fractures are also really amenable to a little dorsal plate. And if it's an oblique or spiral fracture, you can also then consider uh, using leg screws. Or if it's a really bad injury, uh, you can actually put like cerclage wires or even an external, like a small external fixator on them. So you really have all of the options. Generally, the plates on metacarpals are fairly small, but they still have enough strength that you can then begin early range of motion, um, which is something that's really important. So if you choose to do open reduction, you have to keep in mind that to get to the bone, you're going through the skin, but you're also disrupting the tendons and the periosteum, and you're going to be generating a lot more inflammation and scar. So if you choose to do that to get rigid fixation, then you should make sure that you then take advantage of your rigid fixation and start moving them because if you don't, they're going to get much more stiff. And specifically, I think, as you're saying, the tendons not gliding, 
could cause adhesions and you don't want to have to go back in for tenolysis down the line. Yes. And that's, that's sort of the classic problem with treating any hand fracture is your two main goals are to restore prehension and then avoid complications like stiffness. And generally those are, are competing goals because one requires you know, fixation and immobilization and one requires movement. Do you think that there is a higher risk of malunion or non-union because people may want to be more aggressive with the movement aspect of things? We're lucky in that the risk for non-union in most metacarpal fractures is very low. Uh, like unless there's really a substantial bone loss, even older individuals or, or people who smoke, they will tend to heal their metacarpal fracture eventually. And there is always the concern of having a malunion and whether that's that their angulation has recurred or that they end up with malrotation. Those can be corrected in future, but obviously requires another surgery. So it's Again, it's really finding the balance between uh, how you either keep them immobilized or have the fracture held in place, either with K wires or a plate or screws. And, and that's why the studies for the metacarpal neck fractures, just those didn't tend to become more angulated. So if they came to you and they were angulated and, and not significantly uh, malrotated, they didn't tend to progress to becoming that, which is why it really doesn't matter how you ended up treating them because they're just not a fracture that, you know, if you leave it, progresses to more angulation or more malrotation. What would be the main complication of an, a malrotated or poorly healed metacarpal fracture? It's really just if it interferes with their hand function, specifically with grip. So... And uh, that ends up being the biggest issue when someone has malrotation is that when they go to grip like the handle of something and that finger is then underneath, it affects their grip. And, and then if the metacarpal head's kind of down in their palm, oftentimes they'll feel it. And that's something that's good to just warn them in general, that they might feel it a little bit. It bothers people to varying amounts. And if it's really down, it's just going to affect getting that finger up and out of their, their palm a little bit just because of the extensor leg. The last topic that I wanted to go over were uh, metacarpal base fractures, specifically with the first digit. Is this a Bennett's fracture? So a Bennett's fracture is a fracture of the thumb metacarpal base not all thumb metacarpal base fractures are Bennett fractures. So Bennett fracture is a very specific uh, metacarpal base fracture that tends to have the one interarticular fragment on the sort of ulnar molar aspect of the thumb metacarpal. You can also get metacarpal base fractures or epibasilar fractures that don't quite go down into the joint. And you can also get what's eponymously called a Rolando fracture, which is similar to a Bennett's, but makes almost like a Y shape. So both the ulnar and radial side are, are separate pieces. So it's really like a three piece fracture. 
Are there any principles like with an intraarticular fracture management? The reason why people tend to consider Bennett's fractures, and especially Rolando fractures, uh, as requiring like operative treatment, is you do want to restore uh, the congruency of the joint, but also you have to think about the deforming force. And in the case of a Bennett's fracture, the little fracture fragment is actually the stable portion. So it's staying in one place. And then what happens is that it's the pull primarily of your abductor pollicis longus tendon that starts pulling the rest of the metacarpal proximally. So that's your your main deforming force that you have to consider with that. Um, And then your FPL can also cause the metacarpal to sort of tilt volarly as well. But classically, and you know, for your exam, it's the APL, it's the deforming force. Now, some people, if it's minimally displaced, will splint or cast them and then follow them closely to make sure that it, it doesn't become uh, displaced. Um, and many will treat it with uh, usually uh, closed direction percutaneous pinning yeah. just to prevent it from subsiding. Or if it's already uh, shortened, get it out to length and then pin it. For Bennett fractures, you want to provide traction, but then you also want to pronate the thumb, uh, which means that <laughs> it's, it's always uh, like a funny thing to describe, but the pronation of your your thumb ends up being a little bit different <laughs> from the rest of your hand, but essentially you want to neutralize that APL force. So you have your traction and then your pronation. Pronation of the thumb actually means putting the, like rotating it so that the uh, pulp is then pointing up towards the ceiling. What are the common questions that you'd face um, when you're, you're giving a talk or when there's a case with a metacarpal fracture, either from an attending in the OR or at morning rounds? If you're presenting a metacarpal fracture case, similar to all of your cases, you want to give, and especially for any hand injury, you want to start off with your kind of basic hand ID uh, of your patient. So you want the patient's age, their sex, their handedness, and generally their smoking status. So you want that all out in essentially the first sentence. And then you want to describe what their injury is and their mechanism. So so so-and-so is a 25-year-old right-hand dominant construction worker because you also want to include their occupation, who is a non-smoker, presents 12 hours after punching a wall with a fifth metacarpal neck fracture, then you want to describe uh, just briefly what their symptoms are. Uh, And generally for any hand injury, that's if they have any numbness uh, or paresthesias, if they have, you know, pain, where is it? And then you go into your physical examination where that's where you want to describe, you know, if they're having any sensor leg, any malrotation. And then again, for any hand thing, mention whether or not they're neurovascularly intact. So those are just good things. So you should be able to get that out in you know, like less than 30 seconds. <laughs> and then, then you'll kind of jump into, you know, if they want to describe the x-ray. 
what kinds of things are going through your mind when you're seeing one of these, let's say for the scenario that you gave, where it's like a younger guy, non-smoker with that boxer's fracture with kind of borderline angulation, some clinical signs of malrotation. Yeah. And that's why with the hand history, why it's so important to like have that kind of all of those sort of demographic features up front is because those really play into your management. So knowing their age, their handedness, their occupation may influence how you treat them because you might treat someone who's 70, their non-dominant hand different than someone with their dominant hand and say they're a surgeon and want to get back into the OR and using their hand more quickly without necessarily wanting to have a long period of immobilization in a a cast or a splint. So those are things that are going through my mind. It's really what the, the fracture and injury characteristics are, and then what the patient characteristics are. So similar to what I had mentioned before, is this an isolated injury, you know, or is it part of a, a polytrauma? So I'd be much more likely to treat a metacarpal neck fracture conservatively in someone where it was an isolated injury in their non-dominant hand, uh, even if the fracture itself looked the same and they had some other factor that was then kind of guiding me towards optic treatment. So really the most important thing with any of these, which is a little bit different from a lot of other fractures, is you really have to talk to the patient and about what they want. Because, you know, say, like, you know, if, if a tibia is broken, you're going to fix the tibia. And metacarpal fractures, that's kind of the fun and frustrating part of them, is there's all these nuances to it and other things you need to consider, but it really boils down to the patient. Fantastic. I think that's a great place to leave the discussion and leave the listeners with. I just, before we go though, I just want to shout out your website, sketchymedicine.com. You have a ton of like really sweet prints and uh, artwork up there. And uh, I got one myself. I think they're a great uh, study tool or decoration for any uh, healthcare person to have. So I'd encourage everyone to check them out. There are, there's lots of different hand information on there from describing where hand injuries are to the management or even assessing all of the different tendons individually. So there's lots of content on there and really for the most part, it's all free to use. So I I appreciate the shout out and people are also always welcome to contact me if they have any questions.